Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. In October of my senior year of college, I made the mistake of sending out a tweet that said, does anyone know of a church plant in Western Europe that could use an intern for about a year? Literally that afternoon, my pastor at the time tweeted back at me, pack your bags, you're moving to Scotland. Um, It turns out he knew a Scottish pastor who just planted a church in Edinburgh. And so fast forward to the summer after graduation, and I was getting off a plane in Edinburgh, tasting the glory of humidity-free August air, which apparently is a thing in Scotland. And I was warmly welcomed uh, by my new pastor mentor, Athel Rennie. And over the next several days, Athel dropped everything he was doing uh, to welcome me to the city, uh, introduce me to the community, and show me what his church, Grace Church Leith, was about. Um, But teaching me about this church for him did not mean giving me lectures or giving me documents to read. This kind of education meant walking up and down the streets of Leith. Edinburgh's port district uh, that the church calls home, um, and it meant meeting church members, going and spending time in people's homes, meeting neighbors, local shopkeepers, eating meals, um, and experiencing this vision for hospitality as mission. And over the next two years that I got to spend as part of that community, I saw a small church of 30 to 50 people that didn't even have their own building make a difference in their community that much larger, older churches with beautiful old buildings did not. I saw hardened atheists baptized, cynical songwriters softened, and people from multiple nations experience belonging in a way that they never had before. How did that happen? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. For those of you who are visiting, uh, we're in the midst of a series right now on generosity um, and looking at the different ways that we believe that as the church, we are called by a generous God to be a people of generosity. And this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at our call to be a people of generous hospitality. I mean, you heard earlier today, too, that this is World Mission Sunday, and I hope that you'll see as we look at this together that hospitality is actually a crucial part of what it means to be a missional people. We're going to spend our time mostly in Acts 2 and 4 that we heard read by Larry, um, which give us these amazing snapshots of what life in the church was like for the first Christians. And so we'll start in Acts 2, uh, in verse 42, if you want to go ahead and turn there with me. Um, This passage picks up on the day of Pentecost. Uh, It was the day that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus' followers and transformed them from a group of individuals into what the Apostle Paul called one body, Christ's body here on earth. And then Peter's right hand, Peter, Jesus's right hand man, uh, he just preached a sermon that resulted in 3,000 people responding in faith and baptism. And so now in verse 42, we get a summary of what life for these first Christians looks like. So look with me at verse, starting in verse 42. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These verses um, have actually been really central to the life and the identity of Church of the Redeemer from the beginning, Um, and, and for good reason, right? This picture of the early church for us and for many other churches has served as as kind of a compass to help us stay on track or a plumb line to make sure we're not building something that's out of alignment with who God has called us to be. And many commentators have pointed out here that in verse 42, there are four main pillars that early Christianity was built around. Devotion to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We get that general summary in verse 42, and then a more detailed, filled-out summary in the verses that follow. And each of these four pillars, honestly, it deserves its own sermon. It deserves its own sermon series. But this morning, I just want to focus on one of them, the devotion to fellowship. What does that mean? What did it mean for them? And what does it mean for us? Because honestly, at least to me, I feel like the word fellowship is so overused in American Christianity that at this point, it's kind of like an old t-shirt or a pair of socks where you can't quite even tell what color it was originally, right? I mean, we have fellowship halls, which just means an events room. We have fellowship events, which just means social events. We even use fellowship as a verb. We fellowship which just means we hang out. The dictionary calls fellowship a friendly association, especially with people who share one's interests. And I actually think that gets pretty close to what many of us picture. You know, when we hear the church talk about fellowship, we picture an association of friendly people being friendly toward one another who all share an interest in Christianity or in being religious in some way. You know, and like any other voluntary social organization, we choose to associate with one another to the extent that we stay interested. And then when we lose shared interest, we can go our separate ways, right? No big deal. You know, does that sound kind of like what the church is to you? Well, I am here to tell you this morning that this has almost nothing to do with the biblical meaning of fellowship or the definition of the church. See, the original Greek word, um, we can do a little language lesson, the original Greek word that gets translated fellowship in most of our modern Bible translations is koinonia. Koinonia. And koinonia literally means a shared life, a partnership, a communal union, or more simply, Communion. See, it's a picture of people not just in the same room because of shared interests, like a club, 
but a people who are actually joined together in a life that they share. In the verb version, there actually is a verb version in the Greek, koinao, it means to share. And the root adjective, koinos, means shared or common. And so the biblical picture of fellowshipping um, is actually right here in verse 44, when it says that all the believers were together and had everything in koinos, in common. And Acts 4, verse 32, gets at the same idea when it says all the believers were one in heart and mind. They were no longer a bunch of individuals who just happened to be associated with one another. They were a communal union, a communion. That is the deep sense of community. And I'm going to get to the challenging stuff that comes next about selling possessions and and giving to those in need. But none of that makes sense unless we stop here first. As one of my former seminary professors said, too often, you know, when we read this passage, we get hung up on the spectacular giving and we miss the spectacular joining. We get hung up on the spectacular giving and we miss the spectacular joining. See, when we become a Christian, it's not like becoming a member of just one more club or association. When we become a Christian, we are joined, and not just to Christ, but to one another, the church, and not just to one particular congregation even, but to the church throughout the world and throughout the ages, the entire, the whole company of saints who we sing with, when we, which we'll mention in our liturgy of the Eucharist. We become part of a true koinonia. This is not a goal. I need you to hear this. This is not a goal we have or an aspiration. According to the New Testament, God already has made us one body in Christ, a new humanity. We are a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. This is not something for us to achieve. It is a reality that we can either embrace or resist. Now, for those of you who are members or or regular attenders here at Redeemer, how does that sit with you? Does that excite you or frighten you a little bit? Do you view your life as a shared unity with the lives of the people sitting around you? Or do you view yourself most fundamentally as an individual who gets to choose to associate with the people in this room? Do you see the difference? And for those of you here today who are maybe just exploring Christianity, maybe even for the first time, I wonder what all this sounds like to you. How does this sit with you? Because let's be honest, independence is one of the deepest values of our culture. We long for and need our autonomy. But I wonder, is there any part of you that longs for a place to truly belong? A place that's not based on sameness and homogeneity. It's not based on your social performance, but a place where you truly belong. So what would it look like for this shift to happen here? From association to communion. 
from club to koinonia. Well, let me go back to my church community in Scotland, Grace Church Lee. One of the first things I learned about them was that they were big on community. No shocker, right? I mean, every church says that they're big on community. No churches are posting billboards saying they're trying to promote isolation or have mission statements about how relationships are secondary. No, but I soon realized that for this church, being in community actually meant something specific. It meant taking seriously this idea of the koinos, the common. And not simply common interests, you know, like any club or association. First of all, for them, this meant literal common ground. And we often skip over this phrase and acts in our sprawled out American context. But Grace Church Leaf paid attention to Acts 2.44 when it said that all the believers were together. And not just in spirit. They were in the same place. They depended on proximity. And so for, for Grace Church Leith, being joined together as a community meant a commitment to a particular place, a particular neighborhood, the neighborhood of Leith. And they actually encouraged families from other parts of the city who wanted to be a part of the church. They encouraged them to literally move to Leith so that they could participate in this common life in common grounds. And people did it. I mean, that might sound crazy to us now and here, but people actually did it. They moved in order to be part of this church. I saw families with young kids who previously had moved out of the city center so that they could afford larger homes and yards and better school districts. I saw them move back into the city, into Leith, in order to participate in the church's shared life and mission. And what difference did sharing a place in common make? Well, it meant that all kinds of other aspects of our lives were also able to be shared in common. And one of those things, an important one, was neighbors. See, if someone in the church got a new neighbor, that meant the whole church got a new neighbor. We would be ready to help with the move-in, bringing by baked goods, welcoming them into our community. If their washer ended up breaking, we would hear about it. We would take care of it. If their kids needed a babysitter, we would sort it out. In other words, our koinonia, our joined life, and our fellowship, it spilled over to those around us. This is where the idea of hospitality finally comes in. See, we think hospitality is mostly about entertaining guests for dinner. And particularly in the South, right? I mean, this can start to become pretty performative or competitive. It could just become a way of trying to maintain our social position or even climb the social ladder, right? And probably only with people that look just like us. You know, or hospitality is, is just about big industry. And I've got nothing against the hospitality industry. But when I Googled hospitality, pretty much every single picture that came up was a picture of a fancy restaurant or a hotel. But at its core, biblical hospitality is not about entertaining people with a meal. More fundamentally, 
It is about making room in your life so that others can share in it with you. It's about seeing your life as communion. It's about koinonia. Rosaria Butterfield writes this, and I think this gets at this idea well. She says, counterfeit hospitality seeks to impress and entertain. Counterfeit hospitality separates host and guest in ways that allow no blending of the two roles. It separates people into noble givers and needy receivers, or hired givers and privileged receivers. Counterfeit hospitality comes with strings. Christian hospitality comes with strangers becoming neighbors, becoming family of God. Strangers becoming neighbors, becoming family of God. I've got to say, though, I'm the food guy, so i got to make sure this is clear. Inevitably, though, this will involve food. Hospitality may be about more than shared meals, but it definitely ain't about less than that, okay? When you look at deeper at Acts 2, in just these few verses, you see it actually mentions twice that the Christians broke bread together. Verse 46 says that they broke bread in their homes, literally house by house, and ate together with glad and sincere which can also be translated generous, hearts. There's a reason that so much of Jesus' ministry happened over shared meals. I mean, eating is our source of life, right? That's one thing that we definitely all have in common. And since eating is such a foundational human act, the way that we eat says a whole lot about us. Who do you choose to eat with? Who do you choose to eat with? For those of you who are in school, you know, from middle school all the way up through college, who do you gravitate toward in the cafeteria? You know, what would it look like to make space at your table for someone who's alone, who doesn't normally have a place? What would it look like to sit and eat with someone who is different than you? You know, you may not have your own house yet, but you actually can still practice hospitality. See, when we share a common meal with others at a common table, we are doing more than just refueling our bodies in the same space. We are sharing and receiving together from a common source of life. We are coming together for the foundational act of living. And if that starts to sound more than just biological, it should. See, this phrase, the breaking of bread in the New Testament, meant more than just a common meal. It also refers to the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Part of the early church's shared meals were devoted to remembering the death and resurrection of Jesus and to sharing and receiving not just physical, but also spiritual nourishment and life from him. In other words... The breaking of bread began with receiving the hospitality of God. God sharing his own life with us, making room in his own life for us by sharing the gift of his body and blood. So in case you haven't picked up on the word connection yet, that means that Christian 
koinonia, Christian communion, in the sense of fellowship, is rooted in communion, the table. So, true fellowship and hospitality involves sharing common ground and common meals. But we can't skip over the fact that for the first Christians, this did also mean sharing common possessions. Acts 2.44 says all the believers were together and had everything in common in Koinos. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And Acts 4 gives us even more details about this when it says that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. I don't know how you feel when you hear this, but let's just go ahead and call a spade a spade. In our capitalist American context, this makes us super uncomfortable. You know, I've had people ask me before about this passage. You know, does that mean that the first Christians were socialists? Were they communists? Does that mean that to be a Christian, you can't own your own stuff? Before I answer those questions, though, I think we need to pay attention to the way our pulse rises at these thoughts, right? We need to pay attention to what's going on. We need to pay attention to whether we start to get defensive or angry because the things that make our pulse rise, the things we want to defend, tend to be the things that we love and that we might be tempted to worship. See, what if Jesus did demand his followers to give away everything to the community? What if following Jesus did mean no longer claiming that any of your possessions is your own? Would that be too high of a price for you to pay? Is Jesus worth that to you? I mean, I know for me, The thought of eliminating the phrase, my own, from my vocabulary, freaks me out. I am not good at sharing. Just ask Lena. One of the very first things that she learned about me back when we started dating was that eating my blue corn tortilla chips is crossing a line. Um, This actually, as a side note, this very quickly earned me the nickname of Bilbo Baggins. Um, I remember early days, Lena's sister sending a gif of Bilbo from The Hobbit looking at his uh, storage cupboard after, the, after all the dwarves have ransacked it and he looks like he's seen a ghost or something. Uh, that's me. So we're in the same boat here. But let's look at what these early Christians were actually doing. I mean, there are a couple things I do want to point out here. First, this giving away of possessions and properties was not forced, like in a communist system. That comes up very clearly in the narrative in Acts. It wasn't forced. Everything was voluntary. Um, and, And second, we know that not every person sold off literally every possession and every property that they had because the church continued to break bread in people's homes, as we just saw. Um, The early church, if you didn't know this, they actually worshiped in homes 
uh, for the first several decades of their existence. They didn't have church buildings. And so historians think that many of the properties uh, and lands that were sold would have been uh, possibly second homes um, in the country or, or fields and agricultural land that wasn't needed. But it was still costly. And it's, let's be clear. However, even though these first Christians weren't necessarily selling or, or liquidating everything that everyone had, even though they didn't cease to legally own things, they really did cease to see the things that they owned as their own. They really did cease to see the things that they owned as their own. For them, devotion to fellowship, to koinonia, meant a joining together of their whole life. They had everything in common, in koinos. And the Greek word for everything there actually means everything. (laughs) I've come through seminary to tell you this. No one claims that any of their possessions was their own. And that means that for the first Christians, some possessions were sold, were given away. But all possessions and properties and paychecks were seen and used for the sake of the community, not just for the biological nuclear family. It was and is radical. And let's be honest, if the church is nothing more than a friendly association of like-minded people, this does not make sense, right? This is too much to ask. It just doesn't line up. A friendly association doesn't go deep enough to challenge our autonomy. But if the church is a communion, one body joined together in Christ and made a new family by adoption and by the Holy Spirit, it makes all the sense in the world. What doesn't make sense is a group of people who claim that God has made them one and yet continue to make all of their economic and financial decisions as isolated individuals. But of course, that does make sense to most of us, right? Because we're afraid what might happen if we were to live this way, if we were to open our hands and truly share our lives with one another, right? All of us have been hurt. We've been betrayed. We've been wounded in all kinds of different ways. And so it's natural for us to do everything we can to secure our own self-preservation. That is natural. And not to mention, most of us probably have never seen a model of this before. We've never seen anyone do anything other than live for their self and family preservation. And so this might sound ridiculous or fanatical, unrealistic. But we've got to say, as Christians, our barometer of what is possible does not come from what comes naturally to us. Our barometer of what is possible comes from the fact that we believe in a God who raised Jesus and will too raise us from the dead. And the thing is, I actually don't have to point across the pond or across the centuries for examples of this supernatural giving away of one's life. 
I've seen this happen right here at Church of the Redeemer. I've seen you all use your homes to host fellows and college students and welcome them into your families. I've seen you give away cars to people in need. I've seen you give money to help college students go to a life-changing Jubilee conference, high schoolers to the transformative Camp Booyah. I've seen many of you share your hard-earned professional skills with our church in order to build this property or to help people in need. I've seen you drop everything you're doing to grieve or to celebrate with one another. I see Koinonia in this place every day. And I need you to know that these acts, both big and small, are more than just examples of generosity. They are evidence that God's resurrection power really is overcoming our selfishness and making us one. They are a sign, instrument, and foretaste of Christ's kingdom here on earth. And so it's no coincidence that Acts 2 ends with the fact that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, when people see us live in this way, truly joined together by the power of Christ, and when this joining spills over into our neighbor's lives, they just might believe it when we tell them that God is inviting them into his family as well. During my first year in Scotland, I saw this happen. Um, One of our church members met a woman in the neighborhood named Sarah. And Sarah was a brilliant lawyer and an atheist. And she also had a young daughter named Maya, who had significant intellectual and developmental disabilities. And this woman from our church invited Sarah to a support group for mothers that our church hosted. And they built a friendship. And this eventually led to her becoming Maya's nanny. Our church welcomed them in like they were part of our family. We tried to care for Maya like she was our own daughter. And mostly because of that, she and Sarah became deeply involved in our community life. Um, And Sarah at this time was still an atheist, but she'd never been a part of a community like this before. And so she was curious and naturally started asking more questions about why we live this way. And so Sarah joined my community group, and I I still remember these amazing nights of her asking these brilliant, lawyer-precise questions about the Gospel of Mark um, as we read together. And, you know, this continued on for for a while, uh, for, for months. But then the spring of my second year in Edinburgh, I had the incredible joy of seeing both Sarah and Maya baptized. Sarah was able to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead because she saw a power at work in our community that overcame her isolation, that made room for her despite her family's challenges. She came to believe because of the power of koinonia. As Christians, we practice hospitality Not because it's part of being a friendly association of like-minded Southerners. No, we practice hospitality because it reflects the reality that God has already joined us together in Christ and made us one body in him. We are called to share our time, our money, our possessions, 
our dinner tables, our cafeteria tables, our talents, our entire lives with one another. And to extend that sharing to the lives of our neighbors and those with whom we share common ground. What areas of your life are you holding on to and saying, this is my own? Is it your schedule? Your stuff? Your savings? What would it look like? What would it take to take those things and start to say of them, this is God's. This is ours. What changes do you need to make to start practicing the joining? That is already our reality. And I think for all of us, a great place to start is prayer. This week, pray that God would show you an opportunity to share your life with another person, both inside and outside the church. And then expect God to answer that prayer. Keep your eyes open for the person God places in your path. It might even be someone you already know. It might even be someone who lives in your own house. When in doubt, start by breaking bread, share a meal. And no, it is going to feel risky because it is. Opening our life to another person is a vulnerable act. But take courage because as we come to the communion table and we break bread together, remember that God has opened his life and made room to share it with you. That even God does not look at his own life and say, this is mine, but instead has chosen to give it away, to lay it down for you and for me. Praise God for communion. It's what we were made for. And may our life of hospitality lead to many strangers becoming neighbors, becoming family of God. Amen.